Good morning. Happy Easter. It is good to see you today. We're glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. And listen, I'm just going to jump straight in. Like We're not going to play around right here. And so I'm going to ask you right off the bat to take a question that most people might ask and you think, no, that's not that serious. I'm dead serious right now. I want you to stop for just a minute. Think about making your plans, coming to this morning. When you got up this morning, you came here and you show up here. And very serious question. Why did you come today? Like really? Like the real deep, honest, why are you really here question. You don't have to say it out loud. I'm not going to write it down on the screen. I'm not going to do that to you today. Um, we did a neat thing with our girls this year that we'd seen somebody post on the internet. We liked it, so we did it. This weekend we had them go down to a creek by our house and pick out some rocks and then write sins, like real sins that they knew were really in their heart on these rocks and put them in the Easter basket, and we left them there till this morning. And then when they got up this morning, we had their sins taken away, and we replaced them with gifts. Just this idea, this is what Jesus did. Like, took our sin, went to the grave with it, and when he got up, the sin's gone, and there's this gift of grace for us. And they were really, really honest. That's why I'm telling you the story. They were really honest, like reading the things they wrote on those rocks. It was like, oh yeah, <laughs> that's in your heart. That's right. You know, I know, you know, you were honest about it. And so I'm asking you right now, like, why are you really here? And, and here's, what, here's some ideas that I thought of. For some of us, I see you most weeks. Um, and so maybe you're here primarily because this is your weekly routine, right? It's Sunday. You get up on Sunday. You come to church. And if you're really honest, that's why you came today, because it's Sunday, and that's what you do on Sunday. It's your weekly routine. Some of you, it's a cultural tradition, right? We're in the South. It's Easter. In the South, on Easter, you come to church. It's Easter, so you came to church. Right? Some of you, it's a family tradition that every year your family goes to church somewhere together on Easter. It's Easter, so your family came to church together. Some of you are here uh, not because of family tradition, but maybe family expectation that somebody nagged you and harassed you and, and you know that this next week will go better because you were here today and they wanted you to be here then if you hadn't come and they were mad at you all week for not being here. And here's the deal. Whatever your reason is, we're really glad you're here today. Like, thank you for coming because we know that whatever your reason is, there's also a deeper reason underneath your reason, underneath my reason. You know, why am I here? You may say, well, it's because of what you're supposed to do. It's part of your job. They expect you to be here on Sunday morning when everybody else is here. But we've been walking through the book of Acts together as a church for several months. And a few weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 17. And one of the things that was said in that chapter is that God has arranged the times and places and events of all of our lives so that we might reach out for him and seek him and find him. And the basic idea there is that wherever you end up, when you're there, ultimately it's because God has brought you there. He planned for you to be there, and he planned for you to be there so that you might know him, that you would find him. And so you could give lots of reasons why you're here this morning, if you're really, really honest about it. But we're really thankful to know that God brought you here, that God brought each of us here together, and that he has a purpose for this time that we're going to spend reading the Bible and talking about it here in the next few minutes, and that his purpose is that we would know him that we would find him this morning, that he is here to meet with us. He has something to say to us. Listen, you don't need to hear a single word that I say this morning. It is not that important. It is not that impressive, and it will not change your life. <laughs> like my words, it will not matter 10 minutes after you leave. 
But God has things to say from his word, by his spirit. And because it's Easter, look, this is what we believe every single week, but today is just the day that reminds us that we believe that Jesus came back to life. Like we really believe that he lived on this earth, he died on the cross, he was dead and buried, and three days later on Sunday morning he came back to life, and he's alive now that we serve a living God. A God who has sent his spirit to come and speak to us and live in us and bring his word to life in us and make him known. And so when we get together, like this isn't just religious tradition, cultural tradition, what we do every week, weekly routine. We believe that we're coming together to encounter God in his word and that he has things to say. That he's alive and he wants to speak. And so we're going to pray together in just a minute. And I want us to pray like we believe Jesus is alive. If you believe that, it's okay if you don't. It's perfectly fine if you don't believe that. I'm really glad you're here today if you don't believe that. And so if you'll just kind of give us the grace of letting us assume something that you don't believe for the next few minutes, we can talk about that a little bit. But if you do believe that, for us to pray like we believe Jesus is alive and his spirit is real and he's building his church and he's going to answer this morning. And then we're going to read the Bible together. Like we believe that God has something to say. He's alive and he has something to say. And so one of the ways that we try to acknowledge that, that God is the one who needs to teach and speak and that we really believe he does that from his word, is that I'm going to read. We're in Acts 25 and 26 this morning. I'm going to read these two chapters of the Bible. I'm going to read them out loud. They'll be on the screens. You can read along with us. But as I do, I believe that God has stuff to say to us out of these two chapters And so I'm going to ask you, as you're listening, to listen with this question in mind. What does this teach us about God? Like, if he's arranged the times and the events of our life to bring us here right now so that we would find him and know him, then what's he teaching us about himself? How's he revealing himself? How's he making himself known? And when I get done reading, you get to go first. And if you're here with us every week, you know that we do this usually now. If you're not, it's a little bit different maybe than our cultural traditions around here. But I'm going to read these two chapters. I'm going to say, okay, what's that teach us about God? And you get to write the sermon, all right? <laughs> Makes my job easy. And I'm going to write down the things that we believe that God, in answer to our prayer, out of his word, by his spirit, is pointing out to us this morning truths about who he is, what his character is like, what his nature is like, the things that he says to you, to us, as his church this morning. And we'll take 10 or 15 minutes if you've got that many things to share. And then I do have a few things that I've done. I've done this exact same thing this week. I've read through these chapters. I've asked, what's this teach us about God? God, what would you have me say to your people this morning? And I'll share some of those with you as we wrap up. But I just wanted you to know where we're headed. I know it's a little bit different, so I want to make sure that you knew it front. And I also wanted you to know why. And really and truly, like the core of it is because of Jesus. Because Jesus is alive, because this is his church and his word and his spirit. And we believe that he brought you here this morning. We believe this every single Sunday. Like I know like Easter's different in some ways, right? Because this is the day that Jesus came back to life. But also it's not different, because he's alive every day. He is the living God and living King and living Savior every single day. And this is his church every single day. And we are his people every single day. And he, he will speak to you out of his word by his spirit every single day. And every Sunday we come together and we worship on a Sunday because Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday. It's not just today. And so, you know, if you want to come back next week, we'll do this exact same thing next week and the week after that and the week after that and the week after that. And we'd love for you to be here. And in between, I hope that you can walk away and say, I can really encounter God in his word. 
He has something to say to me. I don't need some silly guy up here saying a few things with a mic on his face. Like God will speak to you from his word by his spirit. And he wants you to come and say, teach me about yourself. Show me who you are. What are you going to teach me about you today? And so as much as I hope you'll come back, you don't have to come back. Not for you to know God and hear him and encounter him in his word by his spirit because Jesus is alive. So I'm going to pray for us right now. And I ask that you pray with me that God will teach, that God will speak by his spirit from his word. When we get done praying, I'll read these two chapters. And I know like two chapters, that's a lot of verses. But just be listening. One question, even though it's a lot of verses, simple question, what does this teach us about God? So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for the life of Jesus, the perfect life of Jesus. Thank you for the death of Jesus, the sacrificial, gracious death of Jesus. And thank you for the resurrection of Jesus, the powerful, life-changing resurrection of Jesus. Father, we are here today because of Jesus, because he is alive. And we trust you and we believe you. We believe what you have declared in Jesus. And so we come right now and we ask you to do a spiritual work that only you can do. We ask you to speak and teach spiritual truths about yourself in a way that you speak to our hearts, that you bring about the spiritual work that only you can do. Father, I pray that this won't just be my words, my thoughts, or even our words and our thoughts this morning because those are powerless. Father, I confess, I, just, I openly confess to you and before everybody that I don't have the power to do anything that matters spiritually in anybody's lives, including my own. We are dependent on you. We need you. We trust you to do this. We believe that you've promised to do this in Jesus by your spirit. And so we come in his name right now and we ask you, Father, teach us by your spirit from your word as only you can. Open up the truth of your word to us and open us up to the truth of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, started in Acts 25. You're welcome to turn there in your Bible or on your devices. It'll also be on the screens. Just to catch you up in case you haven't been here the past couple weeks, or if you have been here and you've forgotten, which is what I do really easily, Paul is a missionary who was traveling around the, the Roman Empire. This is probably 25 years after Jesus was resurrected. He's been traveling around the Roman Empire teaching people about Jesus. He gets arrested for talking about Jesus in Jerusalem because there's a lot of Jews who are really opposed to what he's teaching about Jesus being God's Messiah and the Christ and the one that fulfills all the promises that God gave to Israel. He gets arrested. He ends up being on trial and in jail for two to four years um, leading up to where we are today. He's now on another. He's had trial, trial, trial. He keeps having to appear before these different governors and kings. This is his next trial where... His life's at stake. There's a chance they're going to kill him for what he's been teaching about Jesus. And you get to hear today what he says, in a sense, in his defense at his trial. So that's where we are. So, now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, 
Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. 
And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent. And turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man's doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. We'll stop in the story of Acts there today. We'll pick up in chapter 27 next week. But right now, the question, what's that teach us about God? And don't be bashful just because there's more people in here today than usual. 
What's this teach us about God? You've got your 10 or 15 minutes, so what, what really did jump out to you? What did you hear God saying this morning? Jesus will flip your life right side up. Mm-hmm. Jesus will flip your life right side up. I like the way you said that, Chris. You see this with Paul here. You know, a lot of times we'll say, flip your life upside down, like he's, he's completely changing your life. And he does completely change Paul's life. Paul goes from this very religious, but very arrogant, self-confident, self-righteous, I believe in how good I am and the fact that I keep all these laws and that I've been stricter than everybody else and I follow the Jewish law better than everybody. I've done better than everybody else. And Paul was so self-righteous and self-confident and, and zealous and passionate about his religion and his accomplishments in his religion that he saw Christianity as a threat to his religion, and so he was arresting Christians, having them thrown in prison, voting to have them executed. That that was, he had given his whole life to that. He was even traveling to other cities to find Christians and persecute them. That's Paul, and he encounters Jesus. On the way to arrest Jesus' people, Jesus shows up and gets hold of Paul and changes Paul so completely that he goes from the guy who's arresting these Christians and putting them on trial to have them killed for their faith in Jesus to being one of the people who gets arrested and put on trial for his faith in Jesus. Like It couldn't be a more 180-degree turn. But the thing that Chris said that's so great is it wasn't that Jesus turned Paul's life upside down. Paul's life was already upside down apart from Jesus. He was, he was broken. He was wrong. He didn't know it. But in his pride, he was lost in his own sin and he was separated from God and he was trusting himself and living for himself instead of trusting God and living for God. And Jesus came and got Paul's attention. And he opened his eyes and he showed Paul the sin in his own heart and he showed Paul the need that he had for Jesus, for the grace of God to change him and change his life. And he took this upside-down life of Paul that Paul had been living upside-down his whole life so he didn't even know he was upside-down. Like upside-down was normal to him. And Jesus flipped him right side up and changed everything. And listen, that's all of us. Like we've been living upside down our whole lives. Apart from Jesus, everything in your life is upside down. Because apart from Jesus, your life's about you. And the thing is, you're not the most important person in your life. God is the most important person in all reality, the most important person in the universe, the most important person in this world, certainly the most important person in your life. And as long as you are the center of your life, your whole life's upside down because you aren't the center of your life. God is the center of your life. And so we all, living for ourselves, focused on ourselves, thinking about ourselves, relying for ourselves, doing things for ourselves, we all are living upside down. And we've been doing it so long, it's so natural to us that it doesn't feel upside down. And it's normal to be about me. It's normal to think about me. It's normal to base everything on me. It's what I've always done. Well, just because upside down has always been upside down, that doesn't make it not upside down. And Jesus shows up and he says, here's the truth. Let me open your eyes. Let me help you see you're upside down. And I'll pick you up and I'll turn you right side up. He's able to do that. He's willing to do that. He's offering to do that. Jesus will flip your life right side up. What else stands out to you? What other truths about God? Yeah, so and I did, Eric said Jesus went on trial and he was sacrificed for Paul's trial, the trial that Paul had. I did see that you've got this great parallel here of 
Jesus comes and he teaches about God, right? truth about God the Father, and the world rejects him. And ultimately the world arrests him, puts up a sham trial, brings charges against him they can't prove, and they execute him for things that he hasn't done wrong. Like that is why Jesus dies on the cross. And of course, we're here this morning because th- three days later, God brings him back to life. That the judgment of the world and the condemnation they bring on Jesus can't stick because God the Father looks at his son and he knows the perfect righteousness of his son and he knows the sacrificial death of his son. He knows the, the worthiness of Jesus and he looks in all of his justice and all of his love at his son and he brings him back to life. Now in Paul, because Paul now knows Jesus, by faith, Paul's life has been connected to Jesus' life. And this is exactly how God saves you, how he rescues you from your upside-down sinful life. He connects you to Jesus by faith. Like when you say, I believe what you've done in Jesus, I believe what you've said in Jesus, he creates this supernatural connection, this spiritual connection. You can't see it with your eyes, but the God of all reality, the God who's created everything, just by speaking, he speaks and says, okay, you're one with Jesus. I've made you one with Jesus. And in that connection, he takes all of your sin, all the stuff that's upside down in your life, all the stuff that you are guilty about and you deserve condemnation for. You deserve to be on trial the way that Jesus was on trial. And you deserve to be condemned the way that Jesus was condemned. And you deserve to die the way that Jesus died because you really have. You've mocked God. You've ignored God. You've replaced God. You've acted like you're God. Just by saying it's all about me. I'm at the center. This is is for me, about me. I live for me. And God takes all of that, all the things that would be offensive to him and that deserve punishment, and in this connection, he transfers it from you to Jesus. It's like he reaches into your bank account. And listen, your bank account, it's not just at zero it's, it's in the red so far that you never ever get to how, how deep in the red you are. And he reaches in, he grabs all that debt in your bank account, and he says, I'll charge it to Jesus. And Jesus carries all of that debt to the cross. And he says, I'll pay it for you. You'll never, ever be able to pay this, but I'll pay it for you. And then God reaches into Jesus' bank account because, because you all have a joint account now. You're united to Jesus, one with Jesus. He reaches into Jesus' bank account and he grabs the infinite wealth of the Son of God. The one who has everything, all the goodness and holiness and righteousness, all the things that you would think of when you think God's good and and he wants goodness from us. He grabs all that from Jesus and he says, here, in your account, I'll give it to you. I'll treat it as if it's yours. And when God says that, it really becomes yours. Because he's the one who, when he speaks, it's reality. If he says light, there's light. If he says this belongs to you, this belongs to you. So now he looks at you, and he's like, you're not in debt anymore. You don't owe me anything more anymore. It's been paid. Like Justice has been served. The debt's been taken care of. And now you have everything you need to be right with me, not because of you, but because of Jesus. Not because you were at the center and you could do this for yourself. You weren't at the center, and you never could do this for yourself. But Jesus is, and he has. And so in that, now that Paul's life is connected to Jesus, and this has been done for Paul, that all the things, like, that Paul was so sinful, even in his own religion, that's the thing. When you you live by yourself, for yourself, even in your own religion, you can be sinning against God because Paul, in his own religion, is going out and murdering people. He's used his religion to justify the sin in his heart. That's how black and nasty his heart was, and that's how much it looks just like my heart and your heart, even if we hide it better. And so when, when God connected Paul to Jesus, that's what he did for him. He took all of that, and it's on Jesus now. 
And he took all of Jesus' righteousness and he put it on Paul, and he's changed Paul radically. But he's connected to Jesus in such a way now that because Jesus' spirit lives in Paul, Paul's life starts to look like Jesus' life. And the thing that Eric pointed out right here is we get this echo or this reflection in Paul of what Jesus had already done, that Paul says, yeah, I'll die to myself. I I, I will go and I will teach the truth about God, which is exactly what Jesus was doing, and I'm going to teach it so boldly that the world's going to reject it and reject me and arrest me, just like they did with Jesus. And I'm going to, there's going to be a sham trial where they accuse me of things I'm not guilty of, just like they did with Jesus. And I'm going to trust myself to the justice and righteousness of God my Father, just like Jesus did. And I will not turn away from the truth of his grace and the truth of his gospel, and I'll keep declaring it even if it means I die because Jesus is worth my life and Jesus is worth my death and this gospel is more valuable than this life. And so we see Paul so utterly transformed that we do see in his trial the reflection of Jesus' trial, in his condemnation, the reflection of Jesus' condemnation. But then the best news ever of Easter Sunday morning is that also in Jesus' resurrection, in the new life that the Father gives the Son, that also is reflected in Paul. He said, I don't have to grab this life anymore. I don't have to hold on to this life as tightly as I can. I don't have to hoard everything in this world and keep it for myself because I know there's another life coming. A life that God gives in Jesus that lasts forever and matters forever. And if I can pour out this life, if I can even lose this life for that life, so be it. It's the greatest decision I could ever make. And so, yeah, in the trial of Jesus, reflected in the trial of Paul, the condemnation of Jesus, reflected in the condemnation of Paul, but also the resurrection of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the freedom of Jesus, reflected in the resurrection of Paul and the power of Paul and the freedom of Paul to die to himself and die to everything in this world because of Jesus. Eric, I didn't even write anything down right there. Um, Jesus, life, death, and resurrection is reflected in Paul as Jesus' spirit lives in Paul. By the way, when you all say really good stuff like that and I talk for like five minutes, that counts against your time, not mine, okay? A <laughs> couple more. Truths about God, what stands out to you? Yeah, um, and just in case you can't hear, or, you know, if you're watching online, he said that there, there are some differences between Jesus' trial and ultimately his death and this particular trial of Paul. Now, he gets arrested, put on trial multiple times throughout the book of Acts. When we get to the end, here's a spoiler alert for next week, he's not dead yet, <laughs> and they actually set Paul free, but then later he gets arrested again, and they do eventually kill him for his faith in Jesus. Um, and so, you know, there's some parallels there. But right now in this particular trial, one of the biggest differences is that Paul does present a defense for himself. And he says, hey, here's the truth and here's why. And, and Jesus was silent before his accusers. And one of the things that I think that we should see there is the heart of Jesus 
in obedience to the plan that he and the Father had made from the, before the foundation of the world, that he knew he had come to die. And he wasn't trying to avoid the death that he was supposed to endure, both out of obedience to the Father and out of love for you. And it's like there's no intent of Jesus whatsoever to get off. He goes, he even says, for this reason I came into the world. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And I don't know if you've ever really thought about what this would be like. And if you'll just chase this road with me for a couple of minutes here, because I think it's worth it to, if you can comprehend the love and the grace of Jesus towards you and the goodness and the holiness of Jesus, the obedience toward his Father. How many of you, you'll see how honest you are, how many of you like to be right? All right. I lobbed the softball in there. The rest of you, you're liars. <laughs> All right. You didn't raise your hand because you know that somehow liking to be right is the wrong thing to do in your heart. And she's like, I like to be right so much, so I'm not going to raise my hand right here. That just means that you like to be right right now and not admitting that you like to be right. All right. Even when you're wrong, how many of you dig in your heels and be like, I'm going to find a way prove that I'm right. Uh-huh. So that, listen, I'm there. My kids, they can tell you, like, even when I'm wrong, it takes me a little while. Calm down, come back to earth. Like, I'm sorry. I overreacted. But like, what I'll do is I can focus on the part where they're wrong, and if we focus on that enough, we don't have to talk about the part where I was wrong. All right? So, you're wrong, you still want to act like you're right. How much more when you really are right and you know you're right, what does that do in you when the other person still thinks you're not right and won't admit that they're wrong? Like, how many of you, like, how many of you, like, it just, I'm through the roof. Like, I, I can't let that go. Seriously. Defend yourself. Argue all the way to the grave. Like, no, I know I'm right. What would it be like to know you've always been right? To know that you've known everything forever and you've done everything right. And to look at these people who are so wrong and they get to be in a position of power and they get to make the decisions and they get to lord it over you and mock you and condemn you and... In that moment, you have all the power of the universe at your disposal where you could do this, and they're a pile of ashes. You could defend yourself and be right in defending yourself. You could destroy them. Do you know the restraint? Do you know the humility to sit there and take it from them and not respond and not rescue yourself and not defend yourself and not prove yourself? I don't know it. I, gotta, I, I can't comprehend the obedience of Jesus to his Father, and I can't comprehend the love of Jesus for you and me that he would sit there like that. So, yeah, you can condemn me when I don't deserve it. You can speak against me when there's nothing wrong with me, and I won't react. I won't respond. I won't get what I deserve. I won't take it for myself. I won't prove myself. I will go all the way to the end. I will die a criminal's death and the whole world can mock me and ridicule me and beat me as a criminal and I'll, I'll take it on myself. And then, 
He says, and I'll take your sin and let the Father put it on me so that when he looks at me, I really look like a sinner. Like I'll be condemned by the Father even for you. That's what he did at his trial. Now, with Paul, why does it look different right here? My guess is Paul being led by the Spirit, God saying, this isn't, this isn't the time for you to die yet. It was the time for Jesus to die. And Jesus, led by the Spirit out of obedience to the Father, died the death that he was supposed to die to rescue God's people. For Paul now, making Jesus known, declaring the gospel, this is still, you know, last week if you were here, Jesus appeared to Paul while he was in his prison cell and said, just like you testified about me in Jerusalem, so now you also must testify about me in Rome. So Jesus has already told him, you're not going to die. It's not time for you to die. I'm getting you to Rome, to the middle of the Roman Empire, the middle of the known world, and you're going to get to declare my gospel there. And so it's not time for Paul to say, okay, it's time for me. It's not that time yet. When that time comes, as Jesus lives in him, Jesus gives him dying grace. And there's a time when he does die a death that is reflective of Jesus' death. But right here, Jesus gives him living grace and continues to preserve him and sustain him and bring him along. And so, so there is a difference right now because the purpose for Paul's life in this moment is different than the purpose of Jesus' life was. Jesus' life, it was time to die. And Paul's life is not yet. But both... What I want you to see, both are about the gospel of Jesus. That when Jesus dies, it's for his gospel, to, to show the grace and love of the Father. When Paul stays alive, it's to declare the gospel of Jesus. And someday when Paul dies, it's for the gospel of Jesus. It's all about Jesus and all about his gospel. But yeah, like right now, there is a distinction. And I think that's a great thing for all of us to say. If we believe Jesus is alive and that he is working by his Spirit and speaking by his Spirit, then our whole life isn't just, okay, give me a formula, and I'll follow that formula from now on, and I always know what to do. Our life is, I want to listen to the Spirit today. I want to be in the Word today, and I want God to speak to me today. And you tell me today, if it's time for me to live today, show me how to live for Jesus today. And if it's time for me to die today, show me how to die for Jesus today. And every day, look into him and say, how do you want me to live? How do you want me to die today? How do you want me to live today? How do you want me to die today? What, what do you want to do in me and through me so that Jesus is known? What else stands out to you? One more. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. And yeah, and you think about this, like when Paul is on trial, and here's his, like they have the power to execute him, and here's his defense. His defense is, I'm going to take this chance to tell you about Jesus, and I pray you'll believe in Jesus. Like, even my trials about Jesus, even the possibility of my execution or my rescue is about Jesus. And yeah, so this mission statement of Paul's whole life is about Jesus, Paul's death will be about Jesus. Yeah, God wants us to be free in Jesus, to live for Jesus. And, and what Adam was saying there is not shackled by sin, not shackled by our own selfishness and self-centeredness and self-preservation, like all the things that would make our life about us, 
that actually make us slaves and, and servants to ourselves and to our own sin and make us live for ourselves and make us miss everything that God's doing and everything that God has for you, everything God wants to give you, everything God wants to do you, for you, like all that. You miss it when you just... Like, do you know how small we are compared to God? And if your whole life is right here on you, do you know how small your life is? How imprisoned you are in yourself? And God wants to set you free from all of that. Free by His Spirit. Free in Jesus, to live for Jesus, to find out that there is an abundant life beyond anything this world can offer and anything you would ever imagine. In Jesus, for Jesus, for all eternity, forever and ever and ever, for this life, and then just keep going beyond this life. One more. Yes. I'm really glad that you, you zeroed in on that. Paul emphasizes that all this time, the Jews, Paul was a Jew, and he had thought this way. The Jews thought, we're the people of God, and God's for us. And everybody who's not a Jew, that's what Gentile means. You've got Jews, non-Jews. Jews are the Jews, the non-Jews are Gentiles. And they thought, they're, they're heathen, dirty, pagan sinners. Those aren't God's people. God's chosen us. And God shows up in Jesus, and he says... Jesus, yeah, he, he, he's a Jew, he comes from the Jews, but he also comes from Adam, <clears throat> humanity, all humans, comes from all humans for all humans. This isn't limited to one religious group, one cultural group, one racial group, one social group. This isn't limited in any way. Jesus comes for all people. And listen, that's really good news for me, and it's hopefully really good news for most of you, because I'm not a Jew, but if this was really just for the Jews, like the Old Testament people of God, I'm out. And I, I would guess that you know, there may be a few of you in here who are of Jewish descent, but most of us probably aren't. And this is God saying to you, I came for you, all of you, no matter what your race, no matter what your class, no matter what your background, and the people that they thought were the most irreligious and farthest from God and most rejected for, by God, the outcasts according to the Jews, God says, I came for them. I came for the outcasts. I came for the people who are a mess. I came for the dirty sinners. I came for the people that everybody else rejects. I came for the irreligious. It's for everyone that Jesus, Jesus' death, and resurrection. Is for all people. Who will believe. In Jesus. No matter. Your background. Your race class, your culture, your mistakes, your past, your sin, your standing in the world. On and on and on. If you're a success in the world, you need Jesus. And Jesus came for you. If you're a failure in the world, you need Jesus. And Jesus came for you. If you look good in people's eyes and you've kept all the rules and you followed your religion, you need Jesus probably a whole lot because you're so proud of yourself. And Jesus came for you. And if you've broken all the rules and you've messed up and your life just looks 
awful in people's eyes and the religious people will reject you and say you're not good enough. You need Jesus and Jesus came for you. If you're a Jew and you've got the words of God in the Old Testament, Jesus came for you. And if you're a Gentile and you know anything about God, Jesus came for you. One more. I keep saying one more, but you say great stuff and you should talk more than me. So one more and then I'll, I'll tell you what was on my heart today out of this section. Yeah. Yes. That's awesome. If you couldn't hear John or if you couldn't hear him on, online there, um, if something's stirring in you right now and you're like, hey, there's more to the Bible than I thought there was. And, and I'd, like to start, I'd like to understand the Bible a little more. We really are serious about this method being something that anybody in the world, like if you will pick up the Bible in this way that God has something to say to you. You don't need me. You don't need anybody else. Now, you can come and ask questions, and we love to help you and like lead you along the way, but that on your own, that you pick up the Bible, and you, this is a simple prayer of God. Will you speak and teach me right now? Because of Jesus, you have that access to God. And he answers that prayer, and then you open it, and you read. Let's say you read a chapter, or you read a paragraph, and you ask, what's this teach me about God? Just that question. You don't, you don't need to know anything else about Bible history, Bible anything. Just God, what do you want to teach me about yourself right now? And as he speaks to you, and you say, okay, so what do you want to do in my heart? Like you're, not, you're not just speaking this to my mind so I'll know another fact about you. You want to change my heart. You want to turn my life right side up. What do you want to do in my heart? And then we end with a prayer of saying, God, will you do that? I can't do it. Will you do that? And so if there's something stirring in you this morning and you're like, I, I want to understand the Bible better, that's the way we try to approach it. I'd love for you to do that on your own, in small groups that we have. That a lot of our groups right now meet here on Wednesday nights and you know, groups of like five to ten people getting together and studying the Bible this way. We'd love for you to come for that. Come back on Sunday mornings with us. We'll walk through it with you, but the ultimate goal is that you could encounter God this way on your own. And so one of the pieces of explanation based on what John said right there, if you want to understand what we call the New Testament, the part of the Bible that was written after Jesus' resurrection. The Old Testament is written before Jesus comes. Right? So the promises, the covenant, sometimes it's called old covenant, that God made that he's going to send a Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus brings this new covenant promise of God of exactly how he saves his people. That's how we break up the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament. The New Testament, the book of Acts, is a history book, basically, written from a spiritual perspective of what happened when the church was first born after Jesus was resurrected. Well, this guy Paul, that's traveling around starting all these new churches and teaching people about Jesus in places like cities that still exist today, historical places. I've been to Ephesus. Ephesus is in Acts. Uh, I've been to Rome. Rome is in Acts. Um, I've not been to Jerusalem, but a lot of you have. Jerusalem's in Acts, and you can just go on down the list. Um, Crete, I've been to Crete, Crete's in Acts. I've, been, I, I've got to stand at places where it's like Paul preached here. And I got to see his prison in Rome. It's really cool to see all that. But in this, in this history book, he goes to all these cities, starts these churches. Well, then he's traveling to other cities. And so the way that he helps these brand new believers come to know God more is he writes letters back to those churches. And the majority of the New Testament, like 13 of the 27 books, are letters that Paul writes. And so what John was saying is that you can cross-reference what's happening in Acts with these letters that he writes, 
And you can see how this is playing out in his life. And so he talked about 1 Corinthians. That's one of the letters written to the church at Corinth. And in that first chapter, Paul says that you've got the wisdom of the world and the strength of the world. And then you've got the, what looks like the foolishness of God and the weakness of God. That the way that God would come and show that he's king and the way that this king would save his people is by dying? The cross is weakness and foolishness. That the king would die for his people instead of insisting that his people die for him? That the king would give up his power as the way that he's going to rescue his people instead of telling his people, no, you go fight for my power. You give me more power. He says, no, I'll give up my power for you. It makes no sense from a worldly perspective. No worldly leader would do this. But we're all upside down. And Jesus is right side up. And this is what he does. He comes and he dies for his people. And and what it says there, and Paul says, so I'm going to proclaim foolishness and weakness to the world. And the world's going to scoff and they're going to mock unless God does something spiritual in their hearts and they open their eyes and they see how beautiful this grace is and how beautiful the love of God is. They'll never get it. And that's okay. (laughs) I'm going to keep saying what's true about God because he will open some people's eyes. He will soften some people's hearts. And when he does, they'll know this is true and they'll believe and they'll be changed forever and it'll matter forever and that's worth all the ridicule and all the rejection and all the mocking I could ever face. He says, so let me be foolish in the world's eyes because that's the wisdom of God. And let me be weak in the world's eyes because that's the strength of God. And so you see this playing out in this chapter right now and, and that's a great connection, this wisdom-foolishness thing. That's where I wanted to go. So here's where we're going to end today. Three truths for you about Jesus' resurrection. And I'm going to move kind of fast just to try to respect our time. If I move too fast and you've got questions, ask me afterwards or come back next week or just whenever. Jesus' resurrection. Three truths about Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is a truth issue. This is the first thing I want you to see. Look at verses 25 and 26, what Paul says right here. I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Paul's saying, this whole death and resurrection of Jesus thing, this was a historical event done in public that lots of people saw. This isn't something that we made up in a back room and we plotted together about and we've launched this crazy... You know! Like these people at this point in time, they were alive when Jesus was alive. And here Paul is standing on trial like saying, Exhibit A, Your Honor, you know Jesus lived. You know Jesus was crucified. And you know that a whole bunch of people have said that Jesus is alive and he appeared to them after he was crucified. None of this has been done in a corner. So what I mean by a truth issue, you may hear that and you're like, well, you're just telling me that it's true. That's not what I'm saying yet. Here's what I mean by a truth issue. Either it's true or it's not. Either Jesus was resurrected or Jesus wasn't resurrected. It's a matter of truth. And I'm contrasting that with it's not a matter of opinion. I don't care what your opinion is about this. And you shouldn't care what my opinion is about this. It's not a matter of emotions or feelings. I don't care how you feel about it. You shouldn't care how I feel about it. Right? I feel like the Kentucky Wildcats are the best basketball team ever. Most of you disagree with that because you weren't born and raised in southeastern Kentucky like I was. My feeling does not necessarily correspond to truth. In that case, it does. But in a lot of cases, it doesn't, right? Your feelings about Vanderbilt and Tennessee and Alabama, your feelings are wrong. 
right? But it's the, like you can feel this and I can feel this and we feel two different things. One of them might correspond to reality, one of them might not, or both of them may not. When we feel so this isn't a matter of opinion, this isn't a matter of emotion, this isn't a matter of feeling. This is a truth issue. Is it true or is it not? And that's the question, I'm, because here's what we do in our world. With almost everything else, we realize when we're dealing with the truth issue. If you go out in the parking lot today at the end of the service, and you're trying to pull out of the parking lot, and I back my car up into you, and you get out and you're like, hey, you've done some damage. Do you want to submit this to insurance, or do you want to pay me for the damage? I'm like, I don't feel like I owe you anything. Like, I sincerely believe I don't owe you anything. Are you going to say, oh, well, if that's what you sincerely believe, that's good enough for you, and, and this will be good enough for me, and we can just believe different things, and it'll be okay. How many of you are going to say that? You already admitted you like to be right. You know, you can only be right if something's true. You realize that? So we're not going to do that about it. You walk into the bank tomorrow. We talked about bank accounts earlier as an illustration of God, and you've got $1,000 in your account, and you walk up to the teller and you say, I'd like $500, please. And they say, I don't feel like you've got any money in your account today. I sincerely believe that you can't take any money out. Are you going to say, well, if you're sincere in your belief, that's what's true for you. That's good enough for me. Like, you believe that, I believe this. I guess we just both believe different things. You be sincere and I'll be sincere and it's all okay. If that makes you feel good and this makes me feel good, we'll just believe it. No, you're not going to say that. You're going to say, can I speak to the manager, please? Because it's really true that you have money in that account. It's really true they need to give you that money when you ask for it. It's yours. Yeah, and we could go on. If I sincerely believe that I can jump off the roof of this building and it won't hurt me, does that mean it won't hurt me? I mean, like if I really, really, really believe it, like deep in my heart with all the faith that I have, does that change what's real? No. I, everything else in the world, when we encounter a truth issue, we realize we're encountering a truth issue. And we just, we operate that way without even knowing it. It's like so subconscious for us that we don't think about it. And so what, what happens is when we encounter a truth issue where some people have said this isn't a truth issue, we don't realize how ludicrous it is. Like, did ancient Rome exist or not? Like, when you're studying history, nobody's like, well, I feel like it did. I feel like it didn't. Okay, no. Okay, historically, did Jesus live or not? Did Jesus die or not? Was Jesus resurrected? It's a truth issue. If you want to answer no, that's fine. Let's have the conversation on those grounds. Why? Why do you say no? Here's why I say yes. But it's either true or it's not. It's a true. It, 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 I don't care what anybody else feels, thinks, their opinion, what they believe. Either this happened or it didn't happen. And let me give you, quickly, three reasons why you should believe this truth issue. The first is the existence of God. I gave you an extra homework assignment last week. I said, what verse in these chapters is the perfect verse for Easter? And it was this verse right here in my mind. 26.8. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul says, you want to know the best evidence that the resurrection could have really happened? God exists. If God exists, and this is the God who there was nothing, he said the word and he created everything. Like nothing turns into everything when he speaks. Is it really that hard for him to look at dead and speak and create life? If there was nothing, he made everything. If there's a dead man and he wants to make him alive, that's actually a small thing compared to taking nothing and making everything. Now, if you want to say God doesn't exist, that's fine. Let's back up there and have the... Because if you reject the resurrection, that's really what you're battling with. There's no supernatural being this powerful who could bring life out of death. 
if you believe God exists, and some of you may not, I think most of you here would say that you do, you're here this morning, if you believe God exists in the resurrection, like it's not just possible, it's plausible. This is what he's been doing from the beginning. Taking nothing and making everything. Taking darkness and making light. Taking death and making life. This fits with everything he's done in the entire history of all creation. It makes sense. So the existence of God. And quick illustration of this one. Just to see, like, you may think, but, but still, it's so hard for me to believe somebody come back from the dead. Unless you know that God exists. Like, if you know who he really is. So how many of you know of the creature called Teenage Boy? You know that teenage boy really exists. So if I tell you this story, when I was in high school, I played football. On Wednesday nights, football practice ended um, about 30 minutes before church started, so we didn't have a lot of time to get from there to church. Like by the time I got cleaned up and all that kind of stuff. And so, but I would get in the car with my dad when, when I wasn't driving yet, and he was still taking me, and I'd be like, I'm starving. And so we would run to McDonald's. Like My town was really tiny, so it was two miles from the high school to McDonald's and two miles from McDonald's to the church, and there was nothing in between. It was easy to get there. So we'd get there in like two minutes. I'd run in, and my go-to when I was really hungry was usually a double quarter pounder with supersized fries, supersized drink, and a McChicken on the side. And I would scarf it down, and if I was lucky, Dad had either gotten a Big Mac or 20 nuggets and had a little bit left over so I could finish his stuff, and I could refill my supersized Sprite two or three times while we were there, and then if I was super lucky on the way out, he may let me get a McFlurry and take it to student ministry that night. So I'd eat all that, go to church, be there for an hour and a half, come out, and I'd get in Dad's car. You know what I'd say? I'm starving. <laughs> and there's this little local pizza town on the way home called Godfather's. And on Wednesday nights, they ran like a Wednesday night after church special that was an extra large, a large, and a large uh, cheese sticks for 19.99. Like I know you can't even buy a gallon of gas for that anymore, but that's what all that was back then. And, uh, and so we would get to that, and I'd get home, and it wasn't anything for me to eat like half of one of those pizzas. You know, I'd eat six slices of that pepperoni pizza, and then eat three or four cheese sticks. And if you're sitting here and you've never encountered a teenage boy, you'd be like, that's a lie, that's impossible. <laughs> if you have encountered a teenage boy, you're like, that's entirely probable. Right? And if you're sitting here and you've never encountered God, this is impossible, this is stupid, this is a lie. If you ever encounter God, you'd be like, this is probable. This is likely. This is who he is. This is what he does. The existence of God is the best evidence you'll ever have for the resurrection. Now, the second thing we've got, eyewitness testimony. People who in that day were saying, we saw Jesus after he was resurrected. And remember, these are people who are on trial for their life. Paul is one of, you're seeing one of them today on trial. He's going to die because people don't believe in Jesus. And he's still saying, he appeared to me after he was resurrected. He changed my life. And it's not just Paul. It's all the apostles, the, you know, the original 12. And then at one point, 500 eyewitnesses at the same time. These are people living in that day who are saying, I saw, this is like real evidence. How do you explain that for all of them when there's no benefit to them in this culture of saying it? They die for saying it. They're thrown in prison for saying it. And they're saying, I know it's true and I can't say anything else. So you want evidence? You look at Paul, you look at all the others who wrote the New Testament and said, we saw him. So eyewitness testimony, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it right now. And then this one. The empty tomb. You see how opposed all these people were 
to, to the resurrection, to Christianity. Paul was one of them. He's trying to stop Christianity. But when he stops, and he's in Jerusalem initially, you know, where Jesus is, he's crucified, he's buried right there outside the city. If you want to stop Christianity, and it's built on all these people saying, Jesus is alive, he's resurrected, what's the easiest way to stop it? Go to the tomb and get the body. They know where it was. There were Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. <laughs> like they know where he was buried. Why does nobody go get the body? Because the body's not there. <laughs> they, have to, they make up a story, and then at the end of Matthew, Matthew tells it. They made up a story, and they said somebody stole the body. They said these disciples who were fishermen, who were so scared the night that Jesus was arrested, they ran off and hid. They came, and they overpowered the Roman soldiers who were trained executioners, and they rolled this huge stone away, and they stole the body. That's the best they could do. Look, you want to believe Jesus wasn't resurrected? Believe garbage like that. All right? That's what I mean about it's a truth issue. Do you believe some fishermen who were scared to death fought Roman soldiers with all their armor and their swords and spears, and they stole the body of Jesus, and then they willingly died for a lie they made up? His body wasn't there because he was alive. And nobody could go get the body because the tomb was empty and they couldn't stop Christianity no matter how hard they tried because he's who he says he is and his spirit came and he took these cowards who had abandoned Jesus and ran away and he turned them into the most courageous and bold people you've ever seen in your entire life. That would be my last thing if I was going to put one more. It would be the change in all these people who encountered Jesus. The disciples go from cowards who run and flee to these bold people who talk about Jesus until they're killed for it. Paul goes from a guy who's persecuting the church to a guy who's preaching about Jesus. And he, like, who are you going to believe most when Paul says, here's why I changed? Like, people today that weren't there and don't know, or the guy himself on trial says, here's why I changed, because Jesus is alive and he appeared to me and he changed me. Do you see all the pieces of evidence? That's what I mean by truth issue, but here's the deal. If you're here today and you don't believe the resurrection, or you're here today and you say you do, but you live like you don't, and all of us do that. I do that so much of the time. I live like this life is all there is, and my life's about me, and my life's about this world. But if you're here today and you don't believe in the resurrection, or you say you do and you live like you don't, it's not because of the evidence. It's not because you've taken a good, hard look at all the evidence. You have to just, I can't, intellectually, I can't believe that. I can't get past It's not why. And I'm not trying to insult you there. All of us do this. Like we may say that's why. Here's why. Because Jesus' resurrection is not just a truth issue. Jesus' resurrection is a spiritual issue. Uh-oh. See if I can turn this back on. There we are. It's a spiritual issue. And what I mean by that when Jesus is resurrected in Matthew 28, the last thing he says before he goes up into heaven, he starts with this sentence, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. His resurrection proves that he is God the Son, equal to God the Father and God the Spirit in his authority and his worth and his value and his place in heaven, and that he has every right to claim you and your life as his own, to be your king, to rule over you, that you belong to him and not to yourself. None of us like that. Not in our natural hearts. Not in the us that's turned upside down and wants to live for ourselves and make everything about it. We don't want anybody telling us what to do, especially not somebody this powerful who has this kind of right, who is always right, and I've got no argument against him. 
And the reason you reject the resurrection when you reject it or the reason you ignore it and just live the way you want to live is because you don't want a God like this who rightfully owns you. It's not intellectual objection. It's spiritual objection, which ties right into our third one, the resurrection of Jesus. It's a heart issue. It's not primarily a head issue. There are facts. There is truth. But your, your mind can know all those facts. A lot of us are here today, and our mind knows all those facts. We know the truth. We would say right here, I believe that. I believe that's true. And right here, we don't live like we believe that's true. Ultimately, I'll tell you why. Because we imagine a God who, if he rules over us like that, he reigns over us, he owns us like that, we project onto him who we are and what we would do if we were in control like that. And you forget this is a good God, a good God who loves you like a father, better than any father you've ever known, a perfect, loving, heavenly father who sent his son to die. He's already shown you what he'll do for you. Like being in his hands is the best place you can be. Having him in charge is the best thing that could happen to you. Having him at the center of your life is the best thing that could happen to your life because of who he is. But I can't, when it becomes a spiritual issue and a heart issue, I can't convince you of that. I feel like Paul, short time or long, I would that all of you would believe in him, that you would know him this way. I can't do that with my words, but he can. He can, and, and the place where he says this most clearly, in Romans 10, 9, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, like you're willing to say, yeah, he really, this is who he really is, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Not believe in your head. It's interesting, he said, believe in your heart. It reaches the core of who you are. That he opens you up and he changes you by his spirit. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from yourself. Saved from your sin, saved from your upside down life. That God will reach down and he will change you and he will make you one with Jesus. And he will do a supernatural spiritual work that only he can do. That's why we're here this morning. Because that's who he is. That's what he has already done in Jesus. That's what he offers all of us this morning. So maybe you came because of cultural traditions or weekly routine or family traditions or family expectations. Short time or long, I pray the day comes when you can say, I came because of Jesus. And I leave because of Jesus. I'll live because of Jesus and I'll die because of Jesus. I'll die to me because of Jesus. I'll die to my sin because of Jesus. I'll die to myself it's just because of Jesus. And I can't even do that. It'll be because of Jesus in the sense that Jesus has to do it in me. And I'll trust him to do that. And today I'll just come and I'll admit I'm who you say I am. I'm as bankrupt spiritually as you say I am. I'm as turned around and upside down and backwards and black spiritually as you say that I am. The darkness of my heart is as dark as Paul says here. This is, here's where you see him making it a heart issue. This is the very last thing we're going to look at. He says, I was obedient to the vision that Jesus gave me. Verse 20, I declared first to those in Damascus, then Jerusalem, the whole region, all the Gentiles. There it is, everybody. Every, this is for everyone. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. They would, they would admit, I, I've been headed the wrong way and I've got to turn and head the right way. You are who you say you are and I want to walk away from me and walk towards you. And the way that Jesus has said it to Paul is, I'm sending you to open their eyes. They're blind, and they need to see spiritually. So they'll turn from darkness to light. 
There's the spiritual issue and the heart issue. I can't do that for you. I'm not asking you to trust me or believe me or believe because I said something this morning. But just like Jesus used Paul when Paul spoke the truth about Jesus and his gospel, I believe that God has promised in his grace that he'll use unworthy people like me and other people he's brought into your life when the truth is spoken to open your eyes. And I pray this morning he does it. You've heard who Jesus is. You've heard the truth of his life, death, and resurrection. You have encountered the Spirit of God speaking through the Word of God to His people. You heard. You heard God say things through His people this morning. I pray that He opens your eyes. I pray that He brings you from darkness to light. I pray that He turns your life right side up starting today. And that you will come and you'll walk with us and we'll say, we want to be more about Jesus. We want to know Jesus more. We want to follow Jesus more. Can we help each other do that? That's why we're here. We're going to pray right now. We're going to have some pastors, elders, staff, wives down here. If you want to pray with somebody, if you just want to come and kneel on these steps and pray, you want to talk to somebody during this next song, you're welcome to do that. We're going to close with two songs. A time for us to worship. A time to say, this is who Jesus is. This is the greatest news in the history of the entire world. God came, God died, God came back to life, and he lives forever. And we're going to celebrate that. So let's pray, and then we'll worship together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Right now, Father, I feel again just how inadequate my words are and how powerless I am spiritually. But I pray for things right now that I cannot do. I pray that you'll do it in my heart. I pray that you'll do it in all of our hearts. I pray that you will open eyes, that you will bring people from darkness to light, that you will draw people to Jesus, that you'll change not just minds but hearts and lives. Father, I ask this in the name of Jesus because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. By the resurrection power of your spirit, do this spiritual work for your purposes, for your glory, in your church. In Jesus' name, amen.